Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think the stories about you is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. The bottom line for a lot of people is that grief sucks. No, it actually doesn't. What sucks, if anything sucks, it's that the person you love most in the world is dead. That's that's the part you can push back against. But the reality is that the grief is just a normal, natural outcome of having deeply, deeply loved someone who now is not physically with you anymore. That was Dr. Doan Cacciatore on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. At some point, each and every one of us loses somebody that we love. And I recently lost someone that I loved, my father, and that was the impetus for this episode. I was joined by Joanne Cacciatore, the author of the book, Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief. I picked up her book while I was muddling through the loss of my father. It really opened my eyes to some new ways to think about and talk about and manage grief. But before we even get to talking about loss and grief, Diana and I wanted to address a topic that often comes up for therapists and which comes up often for us as podcast hosts, and that topic is self-disclosure. You really step into the arena of self-disclosure and even expressing your emotion in this episode, and I think that it's an arena that we're often as therapists uncertain how to navigate it. And on the one hand, um, I think it brings just a realness and humanity to you, Yael. And on the other hand, I'm wondering how that vulnerability felt or how it feels putting it out there in this way. What were some of the things you were thinking about in disclosing this? Yeah, well, so you and I and and Debbie and Jill all talk a lot about our values. And so this was really something that I reflected on a lot in terms of what values I bring to this idea of disclosure. And it to be honest, I've landed in different places over time and around different areas of my personal life and personal experience. And I've certainly noticed myself opening up the longer that I've been doing the podcast and similarly, the longer I've been doing private practice work. And 
where I've come to is, is that my value in both podcast work and in doing therapy is to try to help people to make the listener experience to the podcast one that is um, a learning experience and a connecting experience and certainly in therapy that it's a learning experience and, and a life bettering experience. And I know for myself that I feel more connected to podcasts, to therapists, to books, to blogs, articles, and so on when people share their personal side and their personal experience. So it's become more of a central value for me. But at the same time, and this is one of the reasons why as therapists, we don't do a lot of disclosure. There's a tricky line to walk because if you do too much self-disclosure, it can become more about your experience and less about the listener or the, or the patient in the room. So I, I don't know how, what your thoughts are on that, Diana, but I know it's something that, that we've all played with over time. And we talk about it with each other because I think when we're doing the podcast, we're thinking not only what if my mother-in-law listens to this, but what if one of my clients listens to this? What if my own family, my own child listens to this? And how would I feel about disclosing these parts of myself and what would be the impact on them? So I think it's, like you said, it's, it's navigating this line between being human and being real and how does it benefit people to not put on a facade or have this sort of distance academic. I remember in graduate school, one of the... Um, one of the students was saying that had a supervisor that went as far as taking off their wedding ring so that their, that their client would know that they were married. And on the other hand, it's, it, some therapists talk about their marriage and therapy and is that appropriate? So it's, it's really difficult. And I know that for me, there are certain areas that I feel really uncomfortable disclosing around because I'm really protective of them. So things like around my kids, I don't really want to put that out there. But then, yeah, you've said, actually, I feel fine about that. <laughs> it's other areas that you don't feel as good about. So it's very personal. I think a personal decision and balancing all those different parts of it, I think, can yeah. be hard. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really does take a lot of psychological flexibility, which, of course, is at the core of acceptance and commitment there because it's sort of values, but it's checking in with yourself. It's making sure that you know, in whatever role you're in, you're prioritizing the things that are most important, whether it's patient care or listener experience, but also that you're engaging in ways that um, are protective enough of yourself that you're not um, creating an unsafe position. Yeah. And this topic, you disclosing around grief, is one that almost like we need more disclosure around. And I think that's what you're offering and you're modeling in this episode is that this is an area that we don't step into when somebody is grieving. We don't ask questions about what it's, what's happening for them about their loved one. And, you know, tell me stories about your dad or tell me stories about your experience. And so I think that was also an I, intentional on your part to do self-disclosure around this topic. Absolutely. Yeah. When it, when it comes to grief over the loss of my father, I was surprised at how hard it was and I was surprised at how surprised I was. And I, I realized really how little loss of this magnitude gets talked about in the public sphere. And again, how inevitable it is that we all will experience it at some point. And I really did want to come clean that therapists don't always have it together emotionally. I mean, my, I'm, we're all human. My heart felt really broken when my father died and the moving forward has been awkward, painful, and really unexpectedly hard. But what I, have the benefit of knowing from clinical psychology and the kind of work that I do is that it's okay. It's normal. Thank you for doing it. Y'all. Thank you for sharing this with us. Mm -hmm. 
Dr. Joanne Cacciatore is founder of the Miss Foundation and a professor at Arizona State University. Her area of specialty is in traumatic death, specifically in child death, although today we're going to be talking more generally about death and grief and loss. Welcome, Joanne. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's an honor to speak with you, especially about this extremely important topic. So we've been doing this podcast for several years, and it really only occurred to me after my father passed away this past May that we've barely touched on the topic of grief and loss, despite this being a psychology podcast. And it occurred to me that perhaps we, like our broader culture, are guilty of keeping death and the grief that accompanies it sort of at arm's length because it's a deeply uncomfortable topic to confront. And of course, um, ironically, it's one of, that none of us can escape. Um, so I was wondering if you could actually just introduce yourself a little bit more personally to our podcast audience by sharing how you first became compelled to explore and help individuals who are suffering from, from loss, from traumatic loss. Sure. So I was a mom back in 1994 with uh, three little children, pregnant with my four. And uh, my fourth daughter died as a baby. And it catapulted me into a very, very dark, what I call the darkest, longest night of my soul. And wasn't sure that I could or wanted to live anymore at various points. I just didn't know how to cope, especially in a culture that did not allow the open expression of my pain, a culture that wanted me to just move on, just give it to God, just choose happiness, uh, just choose healing. Um, why are you still so sad? At least it wasn't one of your older children. I mean, you know, the whole list of platitudes goes on and on and on. Uh, at least she's not in pain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I found myself really confronting an, uh, a, a, a world lacking compassion and wanting me to only contact grief in a very superficial level. And I could not do that because what I kept feeling was that our love was worth feeling the pain, that my love for her and her love for me was worth every tear I shed, and that this relationship was worthy of being honored through the open expression and holding of grief. Uh, you know, but you you start to wonder if you're crazy when everyone's telling you the explicit and implicit messages are completely contradictory to what your heart is saying. So, um, you know, so I I had four 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 children at the point, but three living, and um, started studying. You know, started reading and was finding insufficient information, lack of depth, um, nothing that I read except for philosophy, poetry really uh, grabbed me and said, yes, this is it. So, um, and I went to the literature and there really wasn't as much as I wanted, as I needed to read in the literature, empirical science. So I decided to go back to school and I went back to school and I got a you know, couple bachelor's degrees, master's degree and a PhD. <laughs> so uh, then I started researching. Just a little more school. <laughs> Just a little more school. And so then I started, then I became a researcher. So I'm a, I'm a tenured researcher at Arizona State University. I run the graduate certificate in trauma and bereavement there. And one of the things that I see is that, that even in like the school of social work, students really didn't, they didn't feel like they were being prepared to go out there and work with people who had traumatic grief. And and traumatic grief isn't just the deaths of children. Traumatic grief extends to um, the quality of the relationship, the nature of the relationship, the manner of death. So if your 95-year-old mother is murdered, 
that's traumatic because you don't expect, you do expect your 95 year old mother to die, but you don't expect your 95 year old mother to be murdered. And so it's, it's not just about who died. It's also about how they died. It's also about the quality of the relationship and prolonged suffering and uh, fear and trauma. So there are many, many things that, um, that sort of define what's traumatic, what can elicit traumatic grief and what is more of a, what we would call a, in our culture, a quote, good death. Not that even a good death doesn't bring with it intense grief. You recently, I don't know the circumstances exactly of your own father's death, but it's apparent you love him. And because you love him, you're going to deeply feel the presence of his absence all the time. And, right. and that's, you know, that's holy. We shouldn't try to make that go away. We shouldn't try to eradicate that. That needs a space in our lives to be honored for all time. Right? Right. And so that's the nature of my work. And then, and then um, I, in 1996, I founded the Miss Foundation, which is an international nonprofit. We help families whose children have died or are dying at all ages and from all causes. And then I started the first uh, care farm in the world, the Sala Care Farm for Traumatic Grief. And so we have people who have lost children, parents, siblings, spouses uh, under traumatic circumstances who come here and do work. And we have 40 rescued animals. And they come and help us take care of the animals and the animals take care of them. And yeah. uh, in a beautiful sort of symbiotic relationship of, of the giving and receiving of love and compassion. Right. Yeah. And, and your website, I think, offers a whole host of resources. And I know for you that, you know, part of losing your daughter really translated into trying to create resources that you didn't feel were available at the time that she passed away. That's right. And, and I, you know, for me, I think when, when my father died, I was really in search of materials that would speak to the process that I was going through. And what's so amazing to me is that even though it was my father who passed away and he was old and he actually, he was sick for some time, but the end of his life um, was very difficult. And for me, um, finding finding written work that helped me to sort of process the loss and what it meant and to normalize all the different experiences that I was having felt really important. And so I, for me, it's important to point out that your work really does target um, helping and supporting parents who have lost a child, but that it really um, touches all sorts of loss and yes. I think speaks to the, all the complicated experiences that we as grievers can go through. That's right. That's right. The social interactions, um, the self-doubt, the questioning, the, the sort of in a way, I mean, I think that because we don't hold space for grief very well in our culture, grievers often, you know, find themselves going, am I crazy? Like, am I mad? Because everyone keeps telling me I should feel fill in the blank better by now over it, you know, um, you know, I should feel differently than what I do. And there's an incongruence between what we feel in our hearts and what the world may be telling us. And so, so it, it, it's really quite unfair to grieving people because we start to, to doubt our own, the veracity of our own emotions. And, um, and so, you know, this experience that you have with this person you love so deeply, who is no longer 
physically present with you, you know, brings up this wellspring of emotion. And here you are in a world like how and where is it safe for me to express this? Exactly. Exactly. And, and so I want to sort of start talking a little bit about how your work helps people to enter in and sort of turn towards grief, because you describe an approach to grief that doesn't offer a bypass, but instead provides a safe place to feel the grief. I wonder if you can share your thinking on why it is so important to turn towards the pain and the grief. Yeah, I, I, I think there are several things that happen when we, when we, when we turn away. So one of the things when we turn away is that we don't learn to trust our own emotional state. And so when we don't trust ourselves, we start to cut ourselves off from how we really feel. And then you get, in a sense, you get fragmented emotions. So you, it's, it's even hard to tap into how I feel anymore if I've been hiding how I feel for 35 years. I worked recently with a woman whose son died almost 50 years ago. For, so for almost 50 years, she has gone through all these machinations not to feel how she really feels. Drugs, alcohol, marriages, jobs, moving, all the machinations of distractions that we go through. And, and in a way, we add unnecessary suffering to our suffering, trying to avoid our suffering, right? Trying to move away from the pain. Um, and so we, do, we learn not to trust our own emotions. We end up fragmenting. We end up in a situation, unfortunately, where we don't build the emotional muscle we need to carry the weight of the loss, because because we don't practice it. So it's a little bit like uh, I, I, I like yoga. I practice yoga. So if when I'm in a new yoga pose, if it's really a challenge for me and my body is saying, ow, ow, I say, well, forget it. I can't do this. And I never practice it. No, I not. No, I can't do this. And I never will be able to do this. But if I if I deepen the stretch, if I let the muscle soften, if I stay with it, slowly, slowly letting myself lean into the stretch, warming the muscle, showing self-compassion, backing off when it's too much, but then going and approaching it again, backing off, approaching it again. And I, and as I approach slowly, I go a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. Then pretty soon I can, that, I can master that asana. I can get into that stretch and get into that position. If I never practice, I never can. And it's the same thing with our emotions. If we don't practice being with whatever painful emotion it is, deep sadness, despair, angst, um, guilt, shame, rage, whatever emotion it is, if we don't learn to lean into it and turn toward it, then we never build the emotional muscle we need to be able to hold it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And and sort of from the first part of what you were saying in terms of some of the negative consequences and and sort of the the painful consequences of not turning towards our grief, it's kind of like that which we resist persists and grows stronger. I think that's a quote from Carl Jung. And, And I do think that, you know, for most of our emotions, especially the uncomfortable ones, the more practice we get, the more facile we get, and then the more we're able to kind of move move through them. It's sort of like resisting a wave. It sort of takes you down, but if you kind of move with it, then it 
you can, you know, figure out. And I think you use this analogy of a surfer in your book of being, you can kind of ride the wave and you can actually remain standing and, and stay strong. Yeah. Um, so it's grief isn't something we can overcome unless we go through it. Another thing that I love that you write is that grievers are not broken. We're broken hearted. So there's no, there's no need to sort of avoid it. It's, it's more like tending it and, yes. and caring for it. That, yeah. that really matters in the end. Yeah. It's really interesting because a lot of times you hear people in the, in the grief world, even people who, who have studied this, even scientists in the field, and they still say things like, you know, grief is onerous. Grief has to be managed. Grief is, you know, grief sucks. Right. And that's the, the, that's the sort of the, the, uh, the bottom line for a lot of people is that grief sucks. No, it actually doesn't. What sucks, if anything sucks, it's that the person you love most in the world is dead. That's, that's the part you can push back against. But the reality is that the grief is just a normal, natural outcome of having deeply, deeply loved someone who now is not physically with you anymore. And so, um, you know, so, so a lot of people, you know, sort of look at me rather strange when they come into my office and they sit down and they say, you know, I want you to make my grief go away. And I say, oh, I was hoping that we could bring grief closer. And they go, oh, I'm terrified of it. You know, it's, it terrifies me. And the reason that it's so terrifying is because we've made it in the world, we've made it this terrifying thing. We've made it something to be managed, something to be overcome, something that we see of as deleterious in some way. When in actuality, if we can create space for it, it can really... Um, it can really become a, 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 like a dear friend to us, right? The, the hard part is that we've lost the person we love deeply, right? That, 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 that your six-year-old can die of neuroblastoma, that your 11-year-old can die in a car accident, that your 50-year-old parent can complete suicide. You know, all, those are the, those are the, it's the actual death of someone we love. That's what's, that's what we want to hold at arm's distance. That's the enemy. If there's anything that's an enemy, you know, that's the enemy. But the fact that, that we feel deeply is not, is not something to push away. Right, right. And, and, and you write this a number of times in your book, and I just think it's so true that grief and love necessarily coexist, right? Yeah. We, can't, we can't grieve unless we've loved. And if we love deeply, then in some, at some point we will grieve. It's, yeah. it's sort of the inevitable pairing. And, um, and it's a beautiful thing if we can embrace it. It's, it's not always comfortable, but right. it, is, <laughs> right. it is a gift. Yeah, that's right. It's rarely comfortable. Okay. It's, I mean, but, but the reality is I don't think it's supposed to be comfortable. I think it's supposed to be what it is, which is grief. Now, everyone grieves in different ways and expresses it in different ways, right? So some people might uh, grieve and, and uh, you know, they may find solace in, uh, you know, exercise or nature or animals or uh, artistic expression. Uh, some people express it in different ways. Uh, and some people grieve for longer intensely than others. Uh, and I think we need to stop putting our own expectations of how someone should or shouldn't be doing it. So for example, I work with a, a man who was married for 25 years and his wife died very suddenly and he was bereft and brokenhearted. She was his soulmate, his, the other half of him. And he was deeply grievous. And he also remarried very, very quickly. And uh, 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 he was judged for that, 
Right. So people felt like, oh, you didn't grieve long enough. So, so we, so we have this sort of, we have this negative reaction to people for grieving too long. We have a negative reaction for people to people not grieving long enough. For not grieving long enough. I mean, what we need to do is stop putting expectations on grieving people as a society. You yeah. know how 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 dare we tell someone how to experience the relationship that they have with the person they love who died. We don't really have a right to do that. It's, right. it's an overstep. And that sort of provides a nice segue into this issue that I've personally confronted a lot, which is sort of the question of where, how, where and how can you grieve in a culture that exists the way that it does? And, and even if you can sort of find the safe and comfortable people with whom you can share it, there's sort of just the nature of our modern culture is that there's just not much time and space to do the kind of thing that grieving almost demands of us. So I'll kind of share that for me personally. Um, I'm a mother of three young boys and I have a lot of work responsibilities and a spouse who has a very demanding professional life and my father died and my mother lives far away and wasn't able to help out and my in-laws live far away. And in my life, I'm sort of in sort of in need of doing the things that I need to do, right? I need to parent and I need to go to work and I need to sort of be the person who is the caretaker and the responsible one. And it was really, really hard after my father passed away to even just find the time and the space to feel what I was feeling. And I'm in a professional world where I, I know that that's a value. It's constantly what I'm counseling other people to do, to sort of take space and do what they need to do and turn towards their feelings. Um, but I just sort of couldn't find it. And I, initially, I, I wasn't even sure that I needed it. I sort of was able to go back to work and it felt a little surreal to sort of be back in all the roles that I was, you know, normally in and know that my father was no longer around. And what I found is that it sort of it hit me at one point. So about a month after he died, something small happened. It was my kids, my older kids had color day at their school. And I have this very vivid memory where I was like painting their hair red in my bathroom and all the um, hair dye got in the, on the bathroom floor. And I, I needed to pack their lunches and get them to daycare and to school and myself to work. And I was trying to clean up the red hair dye from the floor. The more I wiped, the worse the red paint got all over the floor. And all of a sudden I just like fell apart. It was it, it all kind of hit me at once. And I, it felt like the grief was like coming out of my pores and I literally couldn't stop crying. And there I was needing to get to work, needing to get my kids to school. Yeah. They were in the house with me and I yeah. couldn't stop crying. Yeah. I was like shaking. And it, it sort of hit me that like, I did need to grieve. I just, there was no space for it. Right, right. Um, and I think in your book, you talk a lot about sort of the need to make this space for it. But what do you recommend when life just doesn't really offer that? Right. right. What busy, busy lives. Right. And, and so uh, one of the research studies that I conducted was about ritual and the importance of ritual. And we tend to think of ritual as this sort of think this big production, but there's something that I discovered in my data and that there's a concept I named micro ritual. And micro rituals are these little tiny micro moments throughout our day where we, where we turn toward the person we love who died and we say, I choose to remember you right now. 
So that could be something as simple as, um, you know, inviting him in, I don't know, I don't know what your family rituals are around mealtime, but it could be inviting your dad, inviting your dad, Rafi, to a meal at, you know, if you're having a holiday, right? Inviting him to a meal and just having a moment, just one minute of silence or 30 seconds of silence for for dad, grandpa, whatever you call him, whatever the children call him, right? Um, and, and just acknowledging that we all miss him, right? It could be something as simple as talking to him in your car. It could be something as momentary as lighting a candle or burning incense. And with the intention, so it's about intention of remembering him, the sacred duty of remembering, right? You know, I, I miss you. It could be wearing a piece of jewelry that reminds you of him and touching it throughout the day. And just, I miss you, dad, letting yourself feel it. And so it may be evocative for you at times, which means you might cry. <laughs> right. And, you know, I cry. I really, I, 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 I'm not kidding when I say I cry all the time. I had a client here this morning sitting at the table crying with her. Right. I cry all the time. I don't, I don't, I don't have a need to apologize for it. I don't have a need to clean it up. I'm like, yeah, I cry. Sometimes I ugly cry. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it just seeps out of my eyes. Um, I, I really feel like the expression of open emotion, that deep expression of pain is the work of a warrior. I think it's, it's a sign of strength. I think Washington Irving said that, that, it, that it's a sign of indomitable will. And it's, it's holy tears are, what did he say? Holy messengers Mm. of of love. I love that. Right. I love that. Yeah. And so I have always seen it as uh, something that is not to be hidden. And in fact, uh, Frankl talks about this in man's search for meaning. Victor Frankl talks about that. Our suffering is an, is ennobling that it shouldn't be shameful. So when we suffer, when we, when we embody the courage to suffer, that it's an act of ennoblement. So we stand tall, you know, with a strong back and say, yes, I am grieving, you know, fists in the air with defiance, you know, against a culture that says you may not feel, oh no, we are going to reclaim our feelings against a culture right and so i think all those little those little things that we can do those micro rituals even pulling out a favorite picture and inviting it inviting him to the table with us you know though and and, it, and so it doesn't take long it doesn't have to be this this gigantic you know production of you know a toy drive or a blood drive or it can just be in these simple acts of we miss you dad yeah yeah and i'll share um that it took a little bit of trial and error for me to find some of the ways to, you know, um, have those rituals, the smaller rituals. But, um, you know, I started wearing a piece of jewelry that my dad used to wear and, um, I put a picture up next to my work area and I sort of say hi to him when I sit down at my computer to write. And, um, every month, uh, on the anniversary of his passing, I reread his eulogy that I had written, um, and light a candle for him. So um, in small ways, and then on special anniversaries, and you talk a lot about the importance of anniversaries, and that's something yeah. um, I have recognized more and more that is a really impactful thing to recognize and, and um, you know, sort of 
reconnect to those relationships and to those feelings is, is a really helpful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's an important thing for your three boys to see that when, that when you break down cleaning up the red paint on the floor or trying to cook dinner or trying to drive a car, when you break down, that it's because you love and miss your dad. It's okay. Speaking a little bit more about just like the, the process over time of grief, you know, early grief felt really different than what I feel now. I mean, there are certainly some similarities, but as you write early, this is a quote from your book, early grief feels wild, feels wild, primitive, nonlinear, and crazed. It commands our ascent and our attention. It uses up all the oxygen in the room. It erupts unpredictably. Mm-hmm. That was sort of my red paint day. Um, and you write, our minds replay grief-related content in habitual cycles. It feels inescapable and lasts for much longer than other people, the non-bereaved, think it should. Mm-hmm. And I will say that I felt all of that. I mean, it really was sort of the process in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One thing that was really surprising that you write really beautifully about in your book is is the anger and that wasn't something that I expected. And it wasn't anger towards my father. It was anger towards people who weren't there for me in the way that I wanted. And yes. it was so normalizing for me to read your writing on this. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role that anger plays in early grief. Yeah. So, I mean, anger can manifest for some people. Some people, do, I do meet people who never, who just aren't angry. Um, or aren't angry in the beginning, but then get angry. And the anger isn't as much about um, the circumstances of death. Sometimes, sometimes it is, and rightfully so. I mean, if if your child is shot in her school, rage. You're going to feel anger. Yeah, you're going to feel- Tremendous anger. Rage. You're going to feel a lot of things that are completely righteous. Not everyone feels that way. Some people do. And sometimes it's uh, directed at specific people, but oftentimes it's also at a society that doesn't make space for it. I mean, and this is something I see over and over and over again is this kind of victim blaming thing that happens like in our So I'll meet someone at, you know, at a gathering and they'll go, Oh, I heard what you do. You know, my sister-in-law, she lost her son and she's just so angry. I just don't understand. And I'll say, well, what's her support like? And they'll say, well, what do you mean? Well, how do you feel about her grief? Oh, she's been grief. It's been three months. She's still, you know, she's still having trouble. I mean, God, shouldn't she be over it by now? And I'm like, well, that explains her anger. Right. I mean, are you kidding me? Is this, is this, if this is the way you're treating her, no wonder she's angry. Right. And, and so, you know, I, I, I mean, we perpetually victim blame grievers. Like we're, we're, like we talk about grievers being, oh, they're so socially withdrawn. Well, maybe they're socially, socially withdrawn. You know, if, 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 if your, if your child died by suicide and every time you try to tell the story, someone says, oh, well, didn't you know something was wrong? Or, well, he he chose it for himself. This is what some people whose children die by suicide, this is what some people face. No wonder they're withdrawn. Why are we blaming the victims here? They're being re-victimized by a culture that is absolutely psychologically violent. Uh, or, or if your baby died and you're met with people who say, well, at least it wasn't one of your older children, or at least you weren't attached, 
or, uh, you know, or well, at least you can have another one. I mean, no wonder people withdraw. No wonder people get angry. No wonder people are not finding solace in their faith systems. Because even from within their own churches and temples and synagogues, people are hearing these kinds of things that are not coming from a place of compassion. They're co it's coming from a place of cruelty, actually. And, and I know that a lot of um, spiritual leaders don't mean to be cruel, but the reality is that a lot of them are, not all. I mean, I hear some, I, uh, you know, Giddy's family, there's a little boy who tragically died, Giddy Zilberstein, and we love, we have a pink tree on the farm that's Giddy's tree. And his rabbi, I've heard her sermons, and I mean, I cry with the sermons. I mean, she's so open-hearted and so deeply connected to grief in allowing his family to have their grief and honoring that. But that's more the exception that I see, not just from medical staff, from counselors and therapists in the community, also from spiritual leaders. No wonder people are angry. The systems are failing them over and over and over again. Uh, I don't see anger as a bad thing. I don't see it as a good thing. I see it as a thing. It's an emotion. It's what just people an emotion like every other. That's right? right. It's what people feel when someone they love the most in the world has died. And then it is exacerbated by a world that can't create space and, and validate their feelings. Right. And what I, I'm also curious um, to hear your wisdom on is, is what kind of advice you give to people who are in relationships with somebody who suffered a loss. What, how can they be more effective in responding kindly and compassionately and sensitively to somebody who, who has gone through something so painful? Yeah. So it's, um, I have a lot of resources on my website. And of course, I think the reading the book is very, very helpful. I think so too. In yeah. some ways, I think it's more helpful to people who don't know what to do or don't understand it from the inside because there, you know, so often I get emails from people who are like, I'm at a loss. I don't know what to do for my daughter, for my son, for my mother, for my father, for my brother, for my sister, for my partner. I don't know what to do. And so it, it helps give people a glimpse of what I don't, you know, cause it's unedited. It's the raw truth. I don't make it pretty as you know, right? So because you've read the book. Except books. the writing is so beautiful. It's like poetic and thank you. throughout and, thank and you. so it's raw but it's it's just beautifully written. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you. So I mean, I think uh I think getting to understand it as much as you can and every and self deep self-awareness is incredibly important. Noticing every impulse to turn away from their pain, whether it's turning away by fixing it, whether it's turning away by changing the subject. Uh, I, you know, I can't tell you the number of times grieving people come in here and say, you know, I, I was talking to my best friend on the phone and I started talking about my, my mom who died and started crying. And next thing I know, she's at my door saying, let's go have a drink. I mean, do we really want to tell people don't feel what you feel? Let's go have a drink. Let's go pop a pill. Let's go to the movies. Let's go shopping. I mean, why can't your friend come over and just sit with you and hold you while you cry? And the reality is that, that the answer to that is because people love us so much that it causes them pain to see us in pain. And so what I tell people is deal with your own pain. Feel your own pain in response to their pain. Because the reality is you cannot fix a wound that is this deep. There is no fix for this. All you can do is be there. That's it. Right. But I love your advice to just be with somebody 
wherever they're at, if they're grieving, sit beside them, hold their hand. And I do a lot of couples therapy. And that's something that I'm often telling partners is that the best thing that you can do is actually not to fix what's hurting your partner, but to be there with them so that they're not alone in whatever it is that they're experiencing. And I think that advice really applies to how we can respond to somebody who's grieving, which is to just sit beside them. Because if they're not, if they're less alone in whatever it is that they're experiencing, that helps that is healing yeah absolutely and it's uncomfortable to do I mean that that is true uh, but it is just the biggest gift that you can offer somebody who's hurting yeah it is and people want to remember I mean I'm sure that it, that that there you know that you would welcome somebody saying tell me your favorite memory of your father even if it comes with tears yeah. right I mean you want to remember this significant person in your life. And so don't be afraid to ask, to say, you know, tell me about this person you love who died. That's, I mean, when I meet with people, I say, bring anything you want to share, bring pictures, photo albums, videos, memories. I'll sit with you and we'll watch them together because I want to get to know this person through them. And I always tell people, I don't, people, people will often say, you know, they'll come in and they'll say, I just want to feel better. And what I say is, I'm sorry, I can't help you feel better, but I can help you feel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and just as a a specific thing that I've really appreciated that people have done is um, when they tell me a favorite memory of theirs about my father, how they really loved his warmth and his smile and his optimism and his sense of humor um, and how, you know, his presence was a comfort to them. Those are things that mean a great deal to me and that make me feel connected to him and also connected to the person. So, um, you know, just as another tip to people who are in relationships with people that are grieving, that that can be a really meaningful thing to offer as well. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful thing. That's right. To remember. When, one sort of area that you talk about in your book is this idea of grief as a process of contraction and expansion, which I thought was a really interesting thing, thinking about sort of like grief over time and how it can expand and contract. But I wonder if you can explain for our listeners a little bit about what you mean about grief as a process of, of contraction and expansion. Well, um, so, so a contraction, the muscle contracts and gets very, very tight, right? And it's it's holding very very tightly it's protecting right it's it's in a contracted state right and then the muscle relaxes and it opens and it softens right in early grief it feels like a constant contraction i mean literally not just in a psychological metaphorical sense symbolic sense literally you can feel your your, your body your being is contracted. It's you, everything feels tight. Your jaw feels tight. This is why people feel physically unwell. Their backs hurt. They have headaches, gastrointestinal problems because your body's in a state of constant contraction, right? And also as time passes, you know, it starts to soften. The muscles start to release a little bit and you start to open. But then of course, something will happen. I don't call them triggers. Some people call them triggers. I call them cues. So something will happen and we're cued. A memory. Like that less pathological word, right? Yes. Yeah. Because it's, it's not an, such a bad thing. It right? isn't. It's an invitation. It's yeah. a it's a it's a it's a little knock that says, pay attention, something important is happening, right? 
So we get cued and then we might contract again. And sometimes when we have a contraction, what's important during a contraction, like a woman who's giving birth, is that we pull our energy in right? We, we pull our energy in and we focus on the pain. We turn toward the pain. We say, okay, I'm going to stay with this. And we don't focus as much about, uh, about what's outside of us. We've, we're, we're bringing our energy inward, okay? And then the expansion happens. The contraction starts to release and then we can open. And then when, as you open, you start to see the pain of others, and that pain, that's a really interesting process because as our pain unfolds and as we, in a sense, mature through our grief, at first we see others who are very, very, very much like us. Maybe you see someone whose father dies when they're at a young age with young children and um, and they were very close to their father who was such a comfort to others, who was such a beautiful and open being, right? And you relate to that person. And then as you start to open more as maybe time passes or you experience different things. You start to meet people whose mother pass or whose sibling dies or whose child dies. And you start to feel connected to that person and softness toward that person. And then you start to see a hungry person and a homeless person and your heart softens yeah. Because it's opened so much because the contraction after every contraction, if we can stay with it, our hearts break open more into the world. And then they get that, that, that breadth and depth of compassion can actually start to reach further and further and further. And then you're seeing an abused animal and feeling compassion. And it's profound. It is profound. And I love how you write about this, that this is sort of one of the gifts of grief is that, um, you know, I'll, I'll read another quote from your book that I loved, um, which is that a heart that has been expanded by suffering has the capacity to hold even more love. And you also write, suffering endured becomes compassion expressed, grieving becomes giving, pain becomes wisdom, and we cannot help another without also helping ourselves. So this opportunity to really lean into the grieving actually it makes us stronger. It makes us more compassionate. It makes us more wise, but you do need to sort of like allow that contraction, that turning towards the grief to happen. And that, that expansion, that sort of like learning, growing and deepening of compassion to, to occur as well. Yeah. Sort of, you know, go, moving through the process as the process moves through you. Yes. Yes. There's a symbiosis there too. I mean, I think there are two important points there. And the, the first point has to do with sort of leaning toward the pain and turning toward the pain and fully inhabiting the pain, like not sort of going around it or just touching the surface superficially. We have to go into the center of the hard, hottest part of grief to be transformed by it. And also it's never worth the price. No gift, no wisdom, no anything. I'd give it all back to have my child here in a heartbeat. It, right. it, it doesn't happen. This growth does not happen because the person died. It happened in spite of the person dying and it happened because I'm still alive. Right. Right. And, and, and that's the thing, you know, I, I never wanted, it's never been for me a quid pro quo, like, uh, like, 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 uh, you know, like, uh, like I'm going through this to learn a lesson. No, uh, you know, um, I'm not going to say the expletive, but no, I won't accept that. I reject that. Right. Um, 
but the reality, the, the reality of it is that it happened. And so I am left with a choice at some point when I'm ready, I have to be ready. I have to have fully inhabited it first. When I'm ready, I'm left with a choice about what I'm going to do with this pain. And for me, the only thing was to make sense of it by doing something meaningful with my life because she lived and because she died and because she still matters to me. She's still my child and I love her. And I have to bring her love into the world in a way that makes sense for me. Right. And that kind of... um brings me back to your earlier reference and you write about his work, but Victor Frankl's work in Man's Search for Meaning, where he writes about um, that, you know, one of the ways that we create happiness in life is by finding meaning. And sometimes we find that meaning through our suffering, that that is mm-hmm. a reasonable way to to create sort of, a you know, happiness and not happiness is in like pleasure and joy, but, but sort of like a purpose, a sense of meaning. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, and- that sense of meaning, because what what Frankel says is, is you cannot you cannot pursue happiness. Happiness cannot be pursued. It can only ensue, and and it only ensues when you commit yourself to the service of others. Right. Happiness is a byproduct of a life devoted to creating meaning through suffering or by service to others. And I think that is such an important message and clearly one that you've taken up, right? Because Cheyenne's life really turned your life towards helping others in a very meaningful way. And it's sort of, you know, as you just said, you know, it's not, of course, you would trade it all to have her back. So it isn't like it was worth it. But there is something that offers an expansion. That's right. um, if you're ready to enter into that expansion. That's, that's right. And, and important is to fully inhabit the grief because that's where the transformation happens. That's where we are all chemically transformed and the grief, because grief is an energy. All emotion is energy and it's an energetic force that either that can either destroy. Cause I'm sure some of your listeners have known people who were destroyed by grief or who were, who grief manifested as a destructive force, right? And so it's a, all emotion is energy. And so you inhabit the energy and then it transforms and it can be constructive and beautiful, even if painful, certainly if painful. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of value in turning towards your grief and inhabiting it, even though it's painful, even though it's tremendously uncomfortable, you know, it's, it's that's right. A, a service to ourselves. It's a service to others. And there are gifts in, in doing the work, even though it is terribly uncomfortable. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing I want to say about that is very important. It's very, very hard to do the work and to fully inhabit it if we don't have people who love us non-judgmentally and unconditionally through it. If, if everyone is pushing us through and ushering us through and saying, aren't you done yet? Aren't you over it yet? Shouldn't you be feeling better by now? Those, those kinds of intimations are not helpful. They are oppressive. I wonder if we can actually talk a little bit more deeply about what grievers can ask for and how they can ask for it. Um, you know, one of the things that you talk about is self-care and, you know, taking care of our bodies is one pathway towards helping ourselves heal and, and sort of tolerate the grieving more effectively. Um, but, and, and sort of 
you, you make the point that it's important also not to use self-care as a distraction from turning towards grief, but rather sort of an, an opportunity to build our, uh, our ability to tolerate it and, and go through it. Yeah, that's right. Because when we're tired, when we're not well-fed and we're not well-nourished and we're not taking care of our bodies, it's even harder to cope when emotions arise in us, right? right. Yeah. Right. And of course, that, that's very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult to do when you're, you're sort of in that contraction yes. to you know, find the time to sleep and eat well and, and exercise, but it is really important. I am kind of curious for you, you know, when, when you, Cheyenne passed away and you were parenting three other small children, how did you manage the parenting even as you were managing your grief process? Because you know, I'll say from my personal experience that that has been one of the hardest parts yeah. is, you know, there's these little creatures that count on me. So, you know, taking a step away and crying or, you know, even just like the lack of energy that I really experienced in the beginning, it made it really hard to be there for them. But, and, and so I would kind of choose to be there for them and, and push back the grief, but, and that, that ended up being kind of problematic at various yeah. points. There are some things I did right. And there are some things I would definitely do differently. Some of the things I did right with my children, I allowed the open expression of emotion. And like, while I was crying, I would actually say to them, mommy will be okay. I just need to express my sadness. I'm sad because your sister died and I miss her. And they would just sit with me and, you know, they would, oh, mommy, you know, uh, not excessively when I was doing the very, very, very deep sort of marathon cries uh, in my closet floor at three o'clock in the morning, uh, they were in bed. But I did allow them to see my open expression of tears. It's a constant sort of vicissitude between, you know, live life and death, life and death and grief and joy and mourning and living. Um, and I, I think it's just finding the balance. There's no, there's no protocol to follow, unfortunately. I wish yeah. it was that simple. Yeah. But, the, but the reality is that children, surviving children and children in the home, if, you, if you've experienced a parent death and you have living children, say, you know, look, I'm really sad and I'm feeling a lot of deep emotional pain and I miss your papa, your grandpa, whatever you call Rafi, your dad. Uh, I miss him and, and, uh, and I feel it deeply in my very being. And that's because of love. They, they're pretty wise. I mean, I have found children to be much wiser about emotion, about issues of emotion than most adults. And, and they really do appreciate it and they learn from it. I love sort of the idea, as hard as it is, of the importance of being flexible, of sort of, you know, knowing that there's, that it is okay and appropriate and it's a little bit messy, but that to move between, you know, real life of making dinner and doing your work and, and feeling your feelings and That's real right. life of sort of saying, right now I need to get this thing done and then you know, taking a moment and, and crying if, if you feel the need. It, it really um, ties to this concept of a therapeutic practice that I use called acceptance and commitment therapy that really highlights the importance of psychological flexibility. And the, the definition of psychological flexibility is persisting or desisting in behaviors 
given both your values as well as your circumstances. And so it's the idea of like, sometimes we need to turn towards something because either our value shifts or because life circumstances require us to do something that makes more sense than something we were doing. And it's a hard thing to make those pivots, but it's really important. And it also is one of the ways that we build wisdom and and grace. And I think, um, you know, it, it can be messy in the practice of it, but it's nice to have that practice normalized as being messy. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that. I was just going to say it's a normalization thing. You know, like yeah. there are times when I'm, when I feel my own grief on the farm, uh, you know, the, on the care farm and I'm out here and I've got things to do and I'll start crying and I'm like, oh, I can cry and move a boulder. Absolutely flexible through that. Like right. I can be reflexive and move with that too. And, yeah. and when children see that modeled for them, children learn a great deal about emotional flexibility through that. And then they start to understand like, oh, it's a, like I can feel, it's okay to feel and still get things done. Like just because you're emotional doesn't mean you're a mess. It doesn't mean you're incapacitated and paralyzed. Right. It means that you're a feeling human being that's, that's right. connected in deep relationships to other people, which that's is a right. really nice thing to model for your kids. That's right. As, again, as hard and painful as it can be at times. Sure. Absolutely. And sometimes that will manifest in I'm going to bed and pulling the covers over my head. And sometimes it'll manifest as, look, this brick wall has to get built. I'm going to build a brick wall while I... <laughs> That's actually not or one of the dinner. I've had to do, but... <laughs> or cook dinner. Yeah. Um, or cook dinner. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I wanted to finish by talking about the kindness projects because I just, I love this idea. I think it's so beautiful. So I wonder if you can tell our listeners a little bit about, about what that is. Um, sure. The kindness project is uh, something that I started doing. Uh, the, fir- the very first sort of informal kindness project happened in 1994, just after Shy died. Uh, I, ha- I took the holiday money that should have been hers and I knew I had to do something more meaningful with it. I couldn't spend it on my other children. It was, it was hers and it felt like holy. And so I bought, um, so I bought these gifts for the underprivileged children sort of randomly. And it felt, you know, both, you know, deeply mournful and deeply meaningful. And, um, and then I started doing things, you know, anonymously, just sort of having her in my heart. Like I would, you know, buy someone's coffee behind me in the drive-thru or I bought, I saw a little boy playing with a a makeshift basketball hoop that was not a very nice basketball hoop in a neighborhood. So I bought a real basketball hoop and, you know, put it in his driveway at midnight and just left it there for him with my dead child in my heart. Um, And to me, that was, that was her way of living that her life that she was very much alive when I could bring her to the world in that way. And then I started, other parents started, you know, hearing what I was doing. And then, so we created these little cards and just do random anonymous, beautiful things because of a person you love who died. Uh, There's two kinds of cards. It's there's one card that says, uh, this random act of kindness, lent in loving memory of, and there's another one that says done in loving memory of our beautiful child. And so anyone could participate. If you've lost a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a friend, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, a child, anything, and just do random beautiful things for people. And it doesn't bring them back and it doesn't assuage the grief, nor should it. And it also 
also helps us feel connected to them and lets the world know that they lived and they died and they matter. And that it's okay to remember the people we love who died and who matter. I have people who, who are recipients of the Kindness Project who email us all the time and say, you know, like one woman, she got um, like uh, someone who was sitting at her table left her like a $100 tip on a $20 meal. Yep. And so the waitress who got the $100 tip in memory of their daughter who died had just gotten into a fight with her teenage daughter that morning mm. before she left for work. And she, she used very harsh words with her daughter. And so here she is, you know, having left her daughter and said mean things to her daughter. And she realizes the fragility of life. And, you know, in, you know, where can you get that? Where can you get that if you don't get it from, from having lost something so profoundly beautiful? Yeah. Yeah. So the kindness project is one of my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the favorite projects. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's this beautiful way of connecting our pain to the common human experience to remember our loved one, to act in a meaningful way. And yeah. as you're saying, you know, it, it, it doesn't sort of undo the loss and it doesn't make it worth it, but it's a way right. of reconnecting to life and, 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 bring keeping that person with you and bringing their life to touch uh, the lives of others in really important and meaningful ways. And I think it, it's one of the most beautiful things that I've ever read about. And I, I think it's, um, we'll definitely link to it because I think it's a really lovely way for people to sort of connect into the, to making grief more meaningful. Um, it's, it's, some, it's an actionable way to Thank do that. And I think that you know, when you're suffering the loss of somebody that you care so deeply about, it really does help to be able to do something in a very t concrete way that feels like you're creating meaning, that you're, you know, helping yourself heal, that you're touching the lives of other people. Well, thank you so much. I mean, truly, thank you for your book. It really touched me at a time that I really needed to feel understood and to have my experience feel validated and normalized. And if, and I know that you've touched so many, the lives of so, so many people. Um, so thank you so much for your work and thank you for honoring me with your time and your wisdom and, and your personal oh, stories. You. It means a lot to me. And thank you for sharing the treasure of Rafi with me. I always love seeing a little girl loving her daddy. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.